Worship leaders, we are rocking the house. She lets me pick first because I really want the top one. Yeah, I'm a buddy. He's a ranch. He posts 
masks before singing. That doesn't work for me. No, you end up sucking the thing in your mouth when you're trying to get air. Well, and it's, it's even more so before that. If they're wearing masks, it makes me start wheezing. And then if I try to sing, I get issues. I feel you. I don't have asthma and stuff, but yet I'm doing a work order in an apartment. It's, some of these people keep their apartments at 78 degrees, and you're working and sweating. And I, can't, I can't breathe. i got to get out of there. I can't imagine having asthma or something. You know, the time I, the mask doesn't bother me at all is if I'm outside when it's cold. Yeah. But even yeah, then, I usually I, cover my mouth when it's really cold outside anyway because the cold air isn't good for the asthma either. But if I do it before singing, it's just enough of a wheeze that if I start trying to sing, it's I'm choking on it. But even the cold, the problem I have is to hold all the moisture in here and my beard gets all wet. <laughs> and I don't have that particular problem. Oh, Alicia must be here. I figured I could be happy today by myself if I needed to. Well, and the two of us could do it. I think Carrie was asking to. For me, when I get to the course, I have to drop the octave. It wouldn't be awful. It's in a good range. Yeah, actually. It sounds different because the verses are high and then the course is low. But not super low. Well, but right now the verses down low and the chorus is up high. So, you know, whatever. It would be different, but it wouldn't necessarily be bad. Yeah, it is kind of written. At low yeah, voice range, but I can get up an octave when I sing it. Yeah, I'm not sure that I can sing those verses. They're a little bit down there. Right. But but I'm not sure. Sure. <laughs> you have to come down. I just sing. Yeah, you got to pass it off the mic. It's at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. Which works too. Hey, you know. So and if it's just you. That's the best part about <laughs> We might throw our congregation a little bit, but nobody else is going to know if you're changing stuff. People modify notes all the time. Yeah. Or vowels even. Yeah. Yeah. I have to. Especially if I'm singing down low, I have to change the notes down low. It's really bad. It's funny how you, somebody can spell out a high that. note that has an E vowel in it, and they'll sing it as an A vowel or an A vowel, and people hear it as an E vowel because of the context of it. Yeah. That's why a lot of times you hear a song, you, you don't know the words, you may not understand it at first, but then it eventually comes to you. Right. Foreigners trying to sing. I, I can't imagine trying to sing in English when, you, when it's not your, you're not good at yeah, speaking English it. Is not speaking in English is one thing, singing in English is so much more hard. <laughs> so, uh, those that do it well, I've heard some Japanese singers, I had no idea any of the songs was in English, the entire song was in English. <laughs> and once you hear it though, then, then, you, then you get it. There we go.
morning, good morning, good morning. I have a couple morning. of kind of oddball announcements for you this morning that's going to be kind of fun. So I have mentioned last week, and I mentioned it again today, uh, a ministry that we've been partnership partnering with, um, which is called Bless Every Home. And I have passed out to almost everybody, and if you didn't get one, I have one for you. Uh, that is, if you receive, it, it, it does work off of email, so it does need, you do need to have an email somehow or other. And if, if you don't have one, we can easily help you set one up. But basically, the form that I passed out is you can set any username you want. Please be respectful. And you can set any password you want, eight characters. And the only persons that will have that password then will be you and me. So no changes will take place other than I want. I'm going to add the church members for you to do it. And then after I've done that, you can change the password. I don't need to have access after that. It's just so I can set you up. And then it says, what days would you like email reminders? So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You can do up to seven days a week of email reminders to pray, and what it's going to do is it's going to give you the names and the addresses of the people around where you live, and then once I'm through with it, it will give you the names and the addresses of everybody in the church, and then you'll get a cycle. You'll get about five, you'll get about five um, names a day, whatever day you say. So if you say, I want to get uh, names Monday through Wednesday, then every day. Monday you'll get five names, Tuesday you'll get five names, Wednesday you'll get five names, like that. It'll send you an email with those five names and addresses, and then it will also give you a little devotional. So it's going to give you a, a Bible verse, or sometimes it's up to like three Bible verses. Talk about it briefly, very, very briefly, like I mean a sentence. It's very brief. It's not, this is not going to replace your daily quiet time or anything like that. It's very, very brief. And then that is designed to help you know, uh, like a sample prayer that you can pray for those people. So if you don't know, what would I pray for them? I don't know. I just pray for health every time, or I just pray for money every time, or whatever. It'll give you a sample prayer coming out of Scripture, out of that verse, of what you can pray for them. And then you pray. You can ignore that completely and pray whatever God lays in your heart. Or you can pray that and pray more, pray for half an hour for that, or, or however you want to do it. But it's designed to instigate and remind you to pray, and then to give you a sample prayer so you can do that. If you only do one day a week, that's fine. So just one day a week receiving an email to remember to pray for a small set of people. And it's going to be roughly five people. And if you do 40 around your house, and you do one day a week, and it's going to take you eight weeks to pray once for everybody around your house. And once we add in the you know, 15, 20 more from the church, then it would take you like 12 weeks. If you do once, one day a week, five people, um, then it's going to take you like 12 weeks. But you, by that time, you will have, if you answer, if you look at every email, then you will have prayed for everybody in the church, and everybody that's 40 houses around your house in 10 or so, 10, 12 weeks, something like that, okay? And at the bottom, it does ask you for your email address. That's where you're going to get those reminders sent to. They do not send out text reminders. They do not get your cell phone number, okay? And then at the bottom, it says, the very bottom, it says, how many households would you like to pray for to start? Now, I put 40, 60, or 80 there. You just circle the one you want. But if you um, want to do more, you can do more. You'll have to go on the website once you're signed up. Go on the website. You can set those numbers much higher. Like they go as high as like 200. So, but if you do 200 and you only do one day a week, you're not going to get through them all until almost a year. You know, especially after you add in the ones from New Heights like that. So just be aware of that. Because, but if you do five days a week and you do 40, then every couple of weeks you will have prayed for everybody on your list. On the website, then, which is very simple, very very simple mechanic, you'll get an email and it'll say. Go to the website or pray from this email. If you pray from the email, 
that you click on done, when you're done, it will record that you prayed for them. And it's just going to, how many times, and then later, if you want to, you can go into the website, and it'll tell you how many times you've prayed for each of the names on your list. So you click on the little circle that looks like praying hands, and it'll say, you've prayed for this house five times, or you've prayed for this house 21 times, or whatever, based on what you told it. Then it also has on there um, care, which means you've met that person, you, you know that person, you've maybe bought them a gift, or you've said a kind word, or something, you've done some act of care toward them, and you can click that, that's optional, but you can click that every time you do an act of care toward them, and it'll track it. And then it has share, meaning you shared the gospel with them, you told them about Jesus, okay? And you can click that every time you tell them about Jesus, or if you give them a track, or anything like that. And then the last one says, disciple. And you click that if you know that they have become a Christian. Not necessarily led to become a Christian by you. If you have a neighborhood, if you're praying for your neighborhood, and the three houses down from you, you know there's a guy who claims to be a Christian, he professes to be a Christian, and you can click that box. Okay? Um, and So once you're signed up, you, would, you give me this paper back, I can sign you up. You can go on and sign yourself up. You don't technically need me to do that. The only real advantage that you're going to get out of this is twofold. One, I'm going to know that you're signed up, so then I can help... Um, I can take the next step. And two, I'm going to enter the church family names for you. So I'm going to make sure you have on your list the people from the church. Otherwise, you would have to do that work yourself. And, I'm, and, and I've got some people who are going to help me do it. So we're willing to do that for you. So if you, sign, if you go ahead and get signed up, just fill this piece of paper out, just like it says. Get it back to me, and I'll sign you up. You'll get your first email. Once you get your first email, you can click from the email saying you're done praying, or you can click into the website and look around and see what's there. And it's all free. And again, they don't get, they're not going to send you. I've, I've been doing this for almost two years. I, I, I tested it out because, you know, I don't trust sometimes giving away my email address. I've been doing this for almost two years, and I've never gotten a junk email from them. You know, I've never even gotten another email other than a reminder to pray. They've never even sent me something and said, hey, sign up for our other services, because they don't have any, as far as I know. Okay? So you're not doing that. It's not that kind of thing. I've tested it for a long time. And then they don't have your cell phone number, so they're never going to call you like that. So this is a free service that's partnering with us. Okay. That was one. Second thing is, I have these books that I bought to give as a gift to every household. <laughs> what these books are is, they're a, it's called A Journey Through Luke's Gospel for the Whole Family. Okay? So now, obviously, if you're single, it's okay. You're not leaving anything out. You, can, you definitely want to do it still. It would be great learning. But if you happen to have kids in your house or if you happen to have a desire to explore the scriptures from different angles and think on it like a kid might think or, or if you happen to have maybe a believer in your house that's a little less you know, advanced, mature, like that, what it does is when you do the devotional, uh, each time, so like the first devotional says, it's day one, leaving it all behind, starts on day 11. So when you do it, and you go to day, I'm sorry, page 11, when you do it, there's just a simple devotional of like a page, and it goes, uh, the, the main part of the devotional goes on for really two pages. But then it has questions built into it for different age groups. So if your family wants to do this devotional, as a couple with a child or whatever, it says, for example, uh, there's two questions for all. So that's everybody can think about those questions. And then it says questions for threes and fours. So if you have a three or four-year-old in your house, then you could ask that question, which is um, the question in this one is, what did, what did Levi do when Jesus said, follow me? So that's a question for threes and fours, right? 
And of course, you read the story, so they should be able to answer that question. The question for five is to seven. What did Levi take with him as he went to follow Jesus? Okay? And then question for over sevens, which is older kids, basically. Why would Levi or you leave everything to follow someone? Right? And then question for teens. You make choices each day about who to follow, who to be with, who to listen to, who to imitate. How do you make those decisions? What is it about Jesus that has attracted you to following him, or what would Jesus need to be like for you or your friends to choose to follow him? So basically each question is a little bit more advanced. There's 34 devotionals, and it works through the book of Luke, but it does not cover the whole book of Luke. It is, it's all focused around the meals that Jesus had and the time that he spent with his disciples over and, and non-disciples over those meals. So it's a great thing to do at mealtime, right? And it's easy to remember. It's mealtime. I can spend three minutes in the Word, and I bought enough copies of these for every household to have one today. And so, Jason, do you want to help me pass it out? Okay. We're going to go around and give one to you. Um, make sure we got one per household, if you will, so I don't, I don't overstep. That includes. There we go. Brand new out of the plastic. You never had a book brand new out of the plastic? Now you do. I got I got there. Okay. Alright, while he's doing that, I have one last thing for you. Okay? Um, and it is a questionnaire. It's not something you're gonna do right now, but it looks like this. It is a one-page questionnaire. Now that I'm gonna tell you right now, this questionnaire is an act of love. So that other people can act in love. That is the goal. Okay? So what we're doing is we want you to go through this and fill out the questionnaire as completely as you are willing and able to do. Okay? And it's going to ask you questions like your name and address and your phone number. And then I'm not going to sell these, I promise, and your email address. Um, it asks you, do you use social media? Yes or no? So you don't have to put, yeah, my Twitter account is or my social security, my uh, Facebook account is or whatever it is. And there, I still have some because I know there's some people that aren't here. Okay? And then um, it asks you, that, what is your birthday? But then it, it's going to get into things that you, about you specifically. Do you, what are your spiritual gifts if you know them? What is your favorite color? What is your favorite entree, the meal entree, or favorite entrees if you want to list more? There's only so much space, but you can add more on the back, and I put a note about that. Favorite snacks, favorite shows. How do you like to fellowship with other believers? Things you like to do with other believers. And I put study, project, visit, workshop, worship, shop, movies, store, sport. You can mark all, any of those apply. And then there's an other at the end. You can write in more if you want. Do you like to read? What is your favorite genre? So the idea behind this is that when we want to love on each other, then this information is available. So when I want to buy you a gift, and let me tell you, I want to buy you a gift. That is my goal this year. I'm buying everybody gifts as often as I possibly can. So I, out of that sermon that I preached at the end of last year and going into this year, I feel like God really convicted me that we blow it when it comes to worship as far as acts of love and gifts and things like that. We try to cram it all into Christmas and, and that, uh, Christmas time, if you will. And we're not gonna, I'm not going to do that anymore. So you fill this questionnaire out as completely as you're willing and able to do and then give it back into me. Then we will... When someone wants to do an act of giving towards you or a kind act or something like that, they can have this information to do that. 
It would limit to the church. Okay, so we're not going to have people outside the church filling out questionnaires. At least not initially. We're not going to ask anybody to do that. Somebody voluntarily wanted to do it. Fine. Uh, and then we're not going to distribute this. If there's somebody who's outside the church and they want this information, they can't have it. I'm not going to give it to them, and you're not going to give it to them, right? You won't have access to anybody unless you've loved on them. That's the only way you would have access. So basically, it would go like this. Pastor Dan, I want to buy a gift for so-and-so. Can you give me some ideas from their sheet, all right? And I might just take off the snippet that they're looking for and give it to them. And if, and if, um, if somebody wants to authorize the whole sheet, go into everybody and make a book out of it, and everybody can see everybody's sheets, I don't mind that, but I'm not doing that initially. We're going to get the information that's going to be available that they need to love on other people. Some of it should be public knowledge, your spiritual gifts. Everybody should know what your spiritual gifts are. If you aren't acting out in them or telling everybody, then that's got to be coming, okay, and things like that. This is an act of love so that other people can love on you. That is the point. If you refuse this, if you will not do this, then you are refusing to do an act of love toward other people who later want to come and love on you. Now, you say, well, they can come and ask me. It's extremely inefficient for seven or ten people to come and ask you what your favorite snacks are, what's your favorite meal entree, what's your favorite dessert. But if you just fill this paper out one time, that's five minutes, maybe ten minutes at most of your time. And then after that, the church, myself, and uh, the administrative people in the church will circulate what information is necessary to make sure that people can do it. Okay, so that's kind of what it's about. Um, and I felt very loud of the Lord to do that. And there are sheets here. Um, if you don't already have one, I have one for everybody that's here. Okay, so just let, as you come around, if you already have one, just let Jason know you already have one. Brown, I'll put one by your seat. Did you want us to do those for the children as well? Yes, and that is children as well. If they don't have an email address, they don't have a phone number, put your phone number whatever, but I would like to do it. I would like it to be every church member. I know that some people are, like me, not administratively inclined. I, if I get down to, like, there's five or ten church members, I will probably come and hunt you down and say, what, can we fill this out real quick? It really is only five to ten minutes. I did it. It's not that hard. I wrote the whole thing in less time than that, and so I guarantee you it's not that hard to fill it out that fast. Okay? And then, again, it's... Once it's in place, anybody that's in place, we're going to come up with creative ways to use it and for people to love on each other. Okay? All right. I know that was a lot, but I've been feeling moved to do certain things that I think we've been kind of missing the boat on, and I gave it to you. Um, I will make an announcement real quick. There is a team leader meeting today, so a little while after service in the cafeteria, uh, after people have a chance to go to the bathroom, whatever the cafeteria, we'll meet for the team leader meeting. Um, and there's some cool stuff. We're going to talk a little bit about this stuff. There's some cool stuff on that agenda. So even if you're not a team leader, if you're interested in what's going on, you want to sit in, you're welcome to do that and, um, and hear and maybe even give input. Okay? If the team leaders have to vote on something, then the only team leaders and uh, coordinators and deacon and pastor that are in the room will vote. But other than that, everybody is welcome to participate in that meeting. Okay? All right. That was a lot, I know. And I thank you for your patience. And we're going to pray now. And then we're going to jump back into worship. Okay? Did I miss any announcements? Okay, awesome. Thank you for letting me monopolize some of that time and give you a gift or two. And I hope spark us getting started loving one another in new ways. Now let's ask God to do just that, okay? Father in heaven, you are an awesome God. You are a giving God. And we could list the many things that we've been given. You are an awesome God and you are a healing God. And we each could list the many times that we have been healed or 
affected in our bodies and our minds and, and brought out of difficult circumstances. Lord, you are a providing God, and we could go through our finances and go, oh, there's this and there's that, and this mistake happened, that mistake happened, but God took care of this and God took care of that, and I've had what I needed. And you can even look at the times in our life where we didn't have what we needed and realize that you were working to show us something, to grow us, to, to move us forward. There are people that don't have what they need right now. Uh, if there's somebody in this room who doesn't have what they need right now, Lord, I pray that, that they would speak up and let it be known and they, we would not leave this place without this body having what it needs because we generally do have what we need. You've taken care of us. Lord, we confess to you that we are, even in our love for one another, even in our brother and sisterhood and, and, uh, and the little ones, uh, Lord, that we are too close, too disconnected two outside each other's inner circle. And Lord, I'm asking you for a new love and a new intimacy that blossoms here and grows like crazy and then reaches out and becomes infectious. And then it fills other churches. And it fills the neighborhood. And it fills our neighborhoods. And I pray, Lord, that, that we will one and all be faithful to pray for people who live around us and for other church members. That we'll light up the map with homes that we've prayed for, shared the gospel to, and that we know our believers. It will begin to sort out, not, not sort out like we're trying to cast anyone out, but sort out like we can, we can focus on who to love on and who to reach to and who to testimony and witness to and who to evangelize. And Lord, just, just make it all possible. We're living in a crazy day with violence in certain places and, and lack and suffering and evil that has spread and it's, in, it's kind of insidious and it's creeping in, and then sometimes it blows up in the light and everybody can see it and, it and it's terrified some people. And Lord, we know that we ought not to be terrified for you are on our side. And we just ask you to give us then the strength and the endurance and the faithfulness to worship you now as you ought to be worshipped. And that's, uh, that's a high bar for us. That's, that's really something to reach for. Even though we are blessed with the instruments and blessed with the place and blessed with time and blessed with people and blessed with salvation and blessed with your Holy Spirit and the list just goes on, blessed, it might be a challenge for some to truly give you the respect that you deserve. Probably a challenge for all of us because the respect you deserve is probably beyond what we understand. And so we're asking you now to inhabit the praise of your people and take over this time and lead us from here to the throne of grace. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I need children up front and everybody else to stand up. Come on. We're going to jump in jacks? Unless you can figure out how to make that work. You know these motions, I promise.
right, it's inspirational moment time. Nothing more need be said, I think, so I'll turn it over. Who's got what? What have you read this week? What have you seen? What do you got? second if you look, notice on the screen the January memory verse so it is the number one the first memory verse for the year 2021 uh, the latter half of last year we didn't do as well putting up memory verses every week but we added a lot of new things to what we did and so some of that replaced that now we're back to this and so this is Matthew 24 35 and it's a kind of a sim- little bit slightly simplified version it says heaven and earth will pass away but my, or just pass, but my words will not pass away. And so you may think, um, a lot of times we look around at things around us and we think, well, that's pretty much permanent. That's going to be in my life the whole time. You know, it could be an illness. It could be the job you work at, or it could be a vehicle that you intend to make last a real long time or a relationship. If you got married, that should be for your whole life. And, um, but this verse reminds us that heaven and earth, all the heavens as they currently are, and all the earth as it currently is, will pass away. So you literally cannot become permanently attached to anything. God will create a new heavens and earth, a new earth, a new heaven and earth that will come at that latter day, and that's it. And you'll either be in the new heaven and the new earth, or you'll be not in the new heaven and the new earth. And uh, people have asked me before, so, you know, can you travel between heaven and earth then? And uh, I would say the answer is yes. In fact, I think we'll have that new resurrected body disappear in one place, appear in another place. I think there won't even be any transport time. No more mailing time, no more flight time, just disappear one place, appear in another place. That would be awesome if that's, a, if that's the way it actually works, which is my best understanding. But heaven and earth will pass, will go away. It's all gone, it's all gone. No matter what you say to now, no matter what you store up for yourself on earth now, even if the thief does not break in and steal, and even if the moth does not break in and rust or destroy, right? even if it doesn't decay away on this earth, it will go away once and for all permanently when God creates the new heaven and the new earth. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words, that is the word of God, every word that cometh out of the mouth of God, will not pass. Shall not pass. Will not pass. Okay. So that's our memory verse for the month of January. It isn't really even that hard, is it? It's just two pieces. It is, heaven and earth will pass, but my words will not pass. It even has a little bit of a ring to it. Heaven and earth will pass, but my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass, but my words will not pass. Josh, can you take it off the screen? Okay, now who can say it from memory? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will pass forever. Good enough. Yep, will not pass. Jason? Heaven and earth will pass, but my words will not pass away. Perfect. Okay. Anybody else? Heaven and earth will pass, but my words will not pass away. It's not that hard. All right, who can name the reference from memory? Matthew 24 through 35. It's 24, 35, yeah, just one verse, Matthew 24, 35. Okay, so that was the memory verse, and it gave you a little more time to think. If you don't have something, I, I, I confess I had something. In fact, I've been dwelling on it for like the last day and a half. But it, it, it's a YouTube video, and I didn't bring it today because I thought, well, we'll have other things. And so I, I was kind of trusting you all saw something this week. But okay, it's okay. We'll pray and thank God for speaking, and then we'll we'll go back to worship a little bit more. We talked a lot already. Anybody got something? Go once. 
Going twice. Okay, I'm going to ask my son Arvin. Arvin, you pray for us. Remember, we're going to tithes and offerings and then the ladder worship, and then we'll, we'll transition.
God has been gracious to me that more often than not, when, and I think it's largely our praise team, but I think when the Lord is leading in the worship and there's the Spirit is moving, feels like I can feel God working on me, and I mean not emotionally or physically, but I just like something in my soul, that I totally forget what I'm about to preach. And then I just was walking up here and I'm going like, I can't remember anything about the sermon. And then I opened the book and I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> so it all came flooding back. Praise the Lord. Uh, that, that's where we are. So <clears throat> today's sermon is entitled, Outshouting God. Outshouting. I don't think that's a word. I made it up, I'm pretty sure. Um, but I, yeah, I kind of like it. Outshouting. Um, but I guess outshouting would be a different thing. That'd be like if you're out in the field shouting, that would be outshouting. So this is outshouting. Like, I don't know, maybe there should be a dash or something. But anyway, outshouting God. Um, and we're going to see in the text that we're going to read today, one roar versus another roar. One roar versus another roar. Um, let me begin by giving you a little bit of an illustration. Um, when I was younger, I guess I was probably about 13, 14 years old. There's, uh, there, there used to be, it's not there anymore, uh, praise God, because some men and, and myself got together and we sort of renovated that part of my house. Brother Tony led the way and and we fixed it. It had some structural, it had some issues, but um, anyway, so you go through, it used to be you go through the front door where the window is next to the gas meter, there used to be a front door there, and you'd go straight down a long hallway utility room, and on the right half, you'd first pass the, the uh, furnace and the water softener, which the, we have water softener still, but it doesn't work, but anyway, the furnace, and then you'd pass the laundry, and, and then there was a bathroom that I had built, uh, which we, we affectionately called the throne, uh, not because people call toilets thrones, but because I built this bathroom, and when I built it, I couldn't break up the concrete floor to put it in. I didn't know how to do that. So I built it up on a pedestal that was like two foot tall. So to go to the bathroom, you had to step up a foot and then walk up a slight slope, and then you could sit down to go to the bathroom. And it had a shower curtain around it. It didn't have walls. And so I was kind of, it was moderately comical. Um, and then uh, and then you'd go a little further, and i take it back. That the laundry was actually after that. And then there was the door, which is now the door to our bathroom. And so then that back room was back there, which is now partly our bedroom, partly Ariana's bedroom, and we added some onto it when we, when we got rid of the garage. So anyway, you'd walk this long, straight hallway, and there were two lights. There was one light in the front, still there now, and there was one light in the back by the laundry room. The light in the back by the laundry room was one of those two-way switches. You know, if you've turned this one on, then you can turn this one off, but when you come back, you've got to turn the one that you turned off, you've got to turn that one on, and then go to the other end and turn it off. It was ideal so you could walk through the long space, flip the light switch on, walk through the long space, flip the light switch off. Then you're coming back, you turn the light switch on, walk through the long space, flip the light. But if you do it the other way, it doesn't work. So if you, if you go through uh, without the light, then when you come back, you have to go through without the light and vice versa. So I don't know how he had it wired or whatever, but that's the way it worked. And I think the one on our stairway is the same way. So on the one going upstairs. So more often than not, I would be walking that long stretch of hall in the dark. On the left side was a, a set of shelves that my dad had built, and basically it was just really just one by sixes. Uh, didn't even have a lip on or anything, but it were all the way along. They were like 18 feet long and just canned goods on there, and that's, that was their pantry. And um, so walking along canned goods on the right, the throne on the, I'm sorry, on the left, the throne on the right, followed by the laundry. And I'm walking through there, and my brother decides to get crazy. And I just, it just occurred to me that what, the throne was not actually there when this event happened. I'm, I'm blending two times. But anyway, the point is, so I'm walking down that dark hallway, and my brother decided to get up in my face, and so he steps out of the darkness, 
and he yells at me, and he, he just says, ah, like that, right? Like boo, basically, but a kid version. And so he goes, ah, and then I, we're in the dark, and it scared me, so I yelled back, and I go, ah, and he yelled, and then it scared, that scared him because he didn't expect me to yell so loud. And he goes, ah! And then I yelled, ah! And pretty soon we stopped and we all looked at each other and, like, and kind of, we both looked at each other and kind of laughed and chuckled and whatever. Uh, but the point is, I guess I ask myself, why is it that when you're startled, you yell? Some people go to punching. It depends on kind of how you're conditioned. I've done, I did that a lot once I got older, um, probably because I had a lot of those situations in my life. But and then if you jump out and you yell at somebody, why wouldn't you expect them to be surprised and at least make a loud noise or, do, or maybe punch you or something? If you're going to startle them, why wouldn't you expect them to be startled back? I want you to bear that situation in mind then as we look at the scripture today. And if you are excited about the word of God and what God can do in your life, what God can do in the lives of this country and yet in the world through his teachings, which will not pass away, though all heaven and earth do, his teachings will not pass away, then maybe give me a little bit of a, a hoot, a holler, amen, or maybe yell like you were startled, or yell like you want to startle somebody, as we go to Psalm chapter 46. Okay, now I said chapter, but technically it's not a chapter, I understand that, you all understand that, right? It's section 46, it is Psalm 46, it is the song or prayer that is in number 46, the book Psalms. God, the refuge of his people. For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah set to Alamoth, a song. And it's interesting, bro, Tim, I don't know if you know this or not. You might be interested in this, Alicia, Molly, any, any, any of the musical like, singer-type peoples. That, they, that the best estimation of that term there where it says set to Alamoth probably meant that it was meant for sopranos, that the music was set to higher I don't know how that works, a higher pitch that to, for sopranos, but we don't actually know the terms. They're ancient, and they are not inspired of God, and they were not protected like the words were of the text. So we're not positive, but you know, 70-80% of the people think that that means that this psalm that we're about to read was written for sopranos, which may be kind of symbolic when you think about it. Okay? All right, here we go. This is beginning of verse 1. Interestingly enough, I was 90% done with my sermon, and I got a little pop-up on my note that today's, or yesterday or today, whichever one it was, uh, memory, memory verse of the day for um, new version for the Bible app was this first verse, Psalm 46.1. And it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And so God is right here pictured, it sounds like three ways, but I submit to you it's really just kind of like two ways, right? He's our refuge, meaning he's our protector, our shelter, I read a story about a man uh, and a, a boy that uh, were, they would always go over their Christmas break when they were at his grandparents and they would go down to the, the, um, the river or pond or whatever was there and they would fish. And they, they had a particularly bad winter going on and the boy thought they probably wouldn't go. And he went to his dad and he said, uh, are we still going to go down there? Because they usually cut a hole in the ice or whatever or if it wasn't frozen over, they would, they would fish there. And his dad said, yeah, I think we're still going to go. And so then the next morning, God, they got up early and they got all their stuff together and they walked down through the snow and the wind and it was terrible. I mean, like halfway there, he thought, I'm going to freeze to death before I ever get to the water, right? And finally they get there, <clears throat> the boy and his dad, and right next to the stream or the pond, like, I, as his dad well knew, there was a huge rock. And so they built a fire up next to this rock. His dad gathered wood and whatever, and I don't know if you brought the stuff, I assume, to make a fire, and he built the fire up next to rock, and the rock protected them from the wind, and they fished just like they would otherwise. 
that is the perfect picture of what it is talking about. God is your refuge. Notice that it does not say that God takes you out of struggle or trouble or that God puts you a place that's warm when everybody else is cold. It does not say that. It says that he is your refuge. It doesn't say that here, anyway, that he is like our castle or our house or our temple or our building or walls built around us. It doesn't say you have a roof. A refuge is a place that you go in the midst of trouble and you get some protection. You get the ability to survive, right? So if you're ever in a, uh, in a very cold environment, like an icy environment, a snowy environment, whatever, and you're stranded out in the cold weather, they tell you to bury yourself in the snow. Now, that seems counterintuitive. Because it's stinking cold. Snow is cold. I don't want to touch snow when I'm cold. But actually, snow traps the heat in, and you can actually make yourself a little den and get down in the snow, and you can't start a fire in there, but you can stay warm from the wind. The wind chill factor is the worst part, and so on. And that is a refuge. You've heard of an igloo. An igloo is largely a refuge. But actually, they're so, the, the, those who build igloos, uh, which we don't hear all that much about them anymore, but those who build igloos are so good at building them that they build them to be more than refuge. They build them up to be safe places where they can actually have a fire, where they can actually cook, they can actually do their work. But our, a refuge is a shelter in the midst of difficulty. That's what a refuge really is. And he is our strength. And this word here means that God is the strength that flows through us. He is the one that gives us the ability to do the things that we do. Um, Jesus would later say, you can't do anything without me, basically, and paraphrasing that, obviously. God is our refuge and strength. And then he says, a very present help in trouble. And it sounds like that's a third thing. Like, okay, if I'm in difficulty, and then I might, get a, I might find a refuge, because God is my refuge, but I also might, God might do something to help me out of that situation, like transplant me to somewhere warmer or help me find somebody to take me home, that kind of thing, right? But I submit to you that in the greatest times of trouble, you need two things. You need refuge. You need the ability to persist, something to keep you going, something to keep you protected, to persevere, and you need strength to do what you got to do. The truth is, if you have enough strength, you don't need all that much refuge. But when you're overcome by something that is greater than whatever strength you already possess, you need refuge. And out of that refuge, sometimes you gather the strength to do what you have. You can build yourself a shelter, and then the next day, get up and walk to where you need to be, for example. God is our refuge and our strength. He's a very present help in trouble. Notice that phrase, very present. God is our refuge and strength, and he is right ready. He is right now ready. He is already ready. He is with you ready in the face of difficulty. He is our refuge and our strength. Verse 2 says, Therefore, we will not fear. So if God, the God of the universe, the creator God, the one who saved your soul, and if you do know that he saved your soul, then you know the power that he possesses to cleanse a soul, and that alone is something significant, and you know that he has that kind of power, and he is with you, then what the heck are you afraid of? But what do we see in the world? We see lots and lots of people, including professing Christians, afraid of this, afraid of that. I'm afraid of what they'll think. I'm afraid of what I'll say. I'm afraid of what I'll do. I'm afraid of I might slip. I'm afraid she won't like me. I'm afraid he won't give me money. I'm afraid the deal won't go through. I'm afraid it'll break. I mean, it's constantly, all day long, we're, most people are more motivated by fearing a possible negative outcome and therefore working for their happiness to try to stop that possible negative outcome, then they are building something, right? It's like, I'm trying to save up the money so I can buy a house somebody else built. And then 
Stuart, for example, Sherry's grandfather, his lifelong dream, which he never fulfilled his lifelong dream in this aspect, was to buy a cabin kit and build his own house. But if he had started building his own house when he first had the dream, he would have eventually built that house. But he did buy a very nice house, and he did build a very nice garage, and he renovated a nice car, and he did other things that he wanted to do. I'm not saying he made a mistake. What I'm saying is, if you want to build something, then you build it. And if something opposes you building it, what do you do? Build it. So what? I'm not trying to be snotty or nasty or mean to anybody. If somebody doesn't like what you're doing for God, do it anyway. It doesn't matter. That could be the person that loves you the most, but they're stepping up because the enemy wants to try to stop you from doing what you're supposed to be doing. Do what you're supposed to be doing, and it'll build something. It'll turn into something. We must not fear because God is right there. God is ever-present help in trouble, a refuge, a shelter for if things go wrong, strength to persist and continue on. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change. Now, there's a really interesting word here in, that's kind of comes out in the, in the Hebrew, and it basically means chaos. And you're familiar with the idea of chaos? Chaos goes every which direction all the time. It, become, it, it doesn't stabilize. It doesn't simplify. It doesn't have a solid base. Chaos is when people are going all over the place all the time. If you've ever been in your house and you've had four or five children all in the living room at the same time or you visited somebody else's house and four or five children all at the same time, if you sit back for a second and try to be calm and just watch what's going on, what you will see gets close to but is not chaos. It was a joke when I was back at Pizza Hut. We would start our shift by about dinner time, things would be completely out of control. You didn't know how many times the phone was going to ring. You didn't know how thick the stack of tickets on the floor was going to get. You didn't know how long the drive times were going to become or how, or how long it was going to be. We had to tell people an hour and a half, two hours. We'd tell people two hours for pizza, and they'd still order. Wouldn't bat an eye. You know? And sometimes we'd get it to them a lot faster than that. And then sometimes we'd get it to them a lot faster than that, and they wouldn't be home. So you had no idea what was going to happen in the meantime. But at the end, it always came down to locking the door, cleaning the restaurant, writing the deposit, cleaning out the safe, polishing everything, stocking everything, putting everything away. It always came down to the same thing. And so we called it controlled chaos because you knew where you began and you, knew where you, you know where you end. Are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Then you know where you began. Do you know where you're going when you die? Then you know where you end. In the middle is controlled chaos. So when we look at the world, sometimes this is what we see. The earth develops into chaos. That's what the phrase probably could be easily translated there as even though the earth develops into chaos, we will not fear. And it says, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, which is a perfect image of what chaos is, the, the big, strong things that are in life that everybody says, well, that'll be fine, that'll always be there, nothing's going to happen to that. Even if the, those things would slip into the heart of the sea, pardon me, if they would go away out of our sight, the things that we were depending on, that we thought would always be stable, if they would go away, we will not fear. Verse 3, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. And that's talking about the sea, of course. And so the sea, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but this, in this earth, the sea is one of the things that pretty easily can overcome a man. If you're dropped about two miles offshore, you'll die. Bottom line. Unless somebody picks you up or you find a way out, most people cannot swim two miles in waves. And believe it or not, even though the ocean might be fairly warm to touch, you will develop hypothermia. You, you'll have a hard time. People have tried to swim relatively long lengths, and they literally do lasting permanent damage to their bodies to try to do so. 
It's 20 miles, I think it is, across the English Channel. And people have a couple of people have managed to swim that, I think, now. But thousands or tens of thousands have failed in trying. And people died in the English Channel because... 10 miles from solid land where they would have been fine forever because their ship sank or because there was a military battle and they were thrown overboard or because it was a storm and they fell off or whatever. People died just a little ways out to sea. And now we have the sea, In this, this picture is the sea coming after the land, right? Roar and foam. And again, that image of foam there is chaos. Do you, you ever watch white water when a river races down? It goes over the rocks. Why does the water turn white when it goes over the rocks? Does anybody know? Scientists in the room, you know why? Air yep, air bubbles is one main reason. There's only one other reason. Water flows, and when all the water is flowing through, flowing the same direction, light passes through it. In fact, if it, if it stabilizes in its flight, it could be passing you at 50 mile an hour. But if it's stable in its passage, it'll be clear as glass, unless there's impurities in it. You can look right through. If you, go, if you watch a water pipe that's clear, uh, they, had them, they used to have them down at Kosai Imagination Station, a clear water pipe that's full of water, and the water could be traveling through that pipe at 10, 20, 30 mile an hour, and it's clear, completely clear. If you aerate it, the bubbles will appear, right? But it won't really become white because of that. When it becomes white is when it's going in all different directions and clashing with itself. So the light that's coming from the sun bounces off hundreds or thousands of different surfaces instead of just one smooth surface or instead of being able to pass through. And it becomes opaque and water begins to look like foam. The psalmist is pointing out to us that things will happen in the world that look crazy, chaotic, and they'll show up, right? They'll, they'll become opaque. You can't see past them. You have a hard time accepting them. They will shake you like the sea coming for you. It's water's Roar, that's loud. We went down to um, Puerto Rico way back in the day for Sherry's work. And while we were there, we visited a castle. And on the end, the castle was built on the end of the island where it come to a point. And the water would come. And every time the water waves would come, they would shoot 60 feet in the air. Now you look out the ocean, it looked relatively smooth, right? The waves were 5, 10 feet. You know? And then they would come and they would hit that. And, it would and the force of it would shoot up in the air like 60 feet. And it would go... really loud, like so loud, no one could talk. Like, here comes a wave. Wait a second. Okay, now here's what I was saying. Because the roar was so immense. And what he's saying is that this happens, that things in the world happen, that the roar and the foam become about all you can see or do or deal with. And I submit to you that in those moments in time, you need a refuge and you need strength. And God is there for you in ever-present help. And therefore, we will not fear under those circumstances. It says, though the mountains quake at the swelling pride. In other words, the, the, if the ocean come, the solidest things, the biggest, strongest things that no one would think that would ever go away, though they shake when the ocean does what it's doing or the sea does what it's doing, they shake like they might just literally just crumble. Still, we will not fear. For there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. Now, the psalmist may have been foreshadowing, talking about the river that runs through heaven. There was no river in Jerusalem. And so to talk about Zion or Jerusalem that way, it obviously was not talking about that. There was no river. In fact, they would have loved to have had a river. They would have saved saved tens of thousands of lives during wartime if they'd had a river. They didn't. But there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. It's a river of supply and provision. 
that make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God present, all is well. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. You realize how stupid you would, anyone would have to be if God himself were standing with you in the midst of trouble and God stands and you run. How dumb is that? When they captured the Ark of the Covenant, when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, the Israelites were in full retreat. They took the Ark of the Covenant out there because, of course, if God is with us, if the footstool of God is on the battlefield, we cannot possibly lose. That was their thought. But the problem is they had already run away from God. They were already not living for God. They were already not faithful, right? They were evil, essentially. And so then they were being routed in battle, and they ran away, and the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. And then starts a, this huge episode before the Ark of the Covenant finally returns home of all the people that suffer under the tender ministrations of God's presence, the enemies of God who fell, died, were diseased, were in horrible shape. The cities of the Philistines, I think there were five of them or ten of them, ten I think, and they were all racked with horrible disease and everything else because the Ark of the Covenant was there. So what did they do? They sent it back and they inquired of the wise men how to send it back and they sent it back with golden tumors and golden rats in it to represent the disease and the rats that had struck them while God's people didn't have the Ark of the Covenant and the Philistines had it instead. And they sent it back on two cows or pulled by two cows whose babies, fresh born babies, were left at home to prove that the cows would do God's will and take it to where it belonged. Because it's the Ark of the Covenant and it's the presence of God. If you have the presence of God in you, you can't retreat. You can't fall back off of what God is doing. You can't be fearful. God is God. If whatever is in you, whoever is in you, leads you to a place of fear and doubt and not wanting to do what God wants you to do, then whatever is in you, whoever is in you, is not God. Because God is your refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. And that moved is like shaken, broken down, settling to lower base, finding, searching for somewhere solid. Will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. And this is a, a trouble for translators. This phrase here, when morning dawns, is difficult to translate because it's a, a Hebrew colloquialism. If you know what a colloquialism is, it's a phrase. Like, um, like we might say, um, early to bed, early to rise. And most people know that the next part is makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise, right? Because that goes all the way back to Ben Franklin in his letters uh, or in, in uh, Poor Rich's Almanac, whichever one it was. So we kind of pick those things up. But if you went to somewhere else in the world, they wouldn't have a clue. If you said early to bed, they wouldn't know the next thing is early to rise, right? They'd say early to bed makes a man get more sleep or something. They wouldn't recognize it. So we're having trouble recognizing the quoculism. But what it literally basically means is... This, God will help her, and then that last phrase basically means in good time or right now, right at the right time, right away, not, not later, not like you've got to pray and ask God for a while or wait for God to act, but God will help right now, okay? And, and so when morning dawns, that means like at the first part of the day, right? Right at the beginning, Right as you start thinking about, okay, now I've got these problems left over from yesterday. How am I going to solve them? God is right there to help. Just like that. Good translation, probably difficult understanding from the original language. Just a few verses more. 
The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. So the people are making an uproar. They're getting loud. And that causes others maybe to get distracted or whatever. But the people are getting loud. God raises his voice and the earth melted. And it's a picture of what happens in people's hearts when God acts. And so it's like, oh, okay, God, whatever you want, whatever you want, God, I'm, I'm, I'm yours, God. And that's how we feel when God acts, especially if we're not already going in the right way. Verse seven, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. So you see that the God of Jacob is talking about the God of Israel. Jacob was renamed Israel. You may remember the Lord of hosts is with us. He is the, he is the God of armies. He is the God of all the great forces. He is the God of an army that could crush any army that has ever existed. There's one for Reddit. How about an army of angels versus every army that ever existed? Right? The God of Jacob is our stronghold. And we always make a mistake when we think stronghold. We think castles. That's a mistake. If it meant castle, it would say castle. It says stronghold. Do you know what a stronghold is? We're going to talk about it briefly before we're through. Verse 8. Come behold the works of the Lord. Come behold the works of the Lord. Look at what God has done. And it is the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. There are several nations that you can go back and look at that God utterly destroyed himself without help. There are a couple that have completely disappeared off the face of the planet. Edom was one of those. God said, because Edom is prideful and doesn't follow my ways, basically, I'm going to destroy the entire nation. Now the caves exist. They're these huge castle caves in the sides of mountains that people lived in. And they're, they're there, but nobody even knows what, happens to, what happened to all the people. They just ceased to exist. The nation went away. They no longer exist. Wiped from history. Their destruction doesn't even exist in history. No one knows what happened to them. And there are other cases of that. Look at what God did to Egypt to get the Israelites out, essentially, but... Really? Because God could have just teleported them. And before you say, I don't know about that, he did it with Philip. If he can do it with one, he can do it with a whole nation. God could have just done it like this. But notice that those ten plagues attack every God that they had, systematically, proving that there is no other God except for God. That is a lesson for all mankind. God has wrought desolations in the earth. Verse 9, he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots, or your translation may say the shields, because the word there, again, in the Hebrew is hard to translate. And, it, and it's kind of hard to picture burning uh, shields, because people think of them as metal, but a lot of shields were actually wooden. Okay? And so it may be shields that were burnt there. Chariots can work. You burn a chariot, you wind up with the metal parts left, and the wood is gone. The floor was usually wood. Anyway, he burns the implements of war, and he does it with fire. And, and fire is always a picture in Scripture of judgment, 99% of the time. And so he, God does it in God's judgment. In verse 10, cease striving or be still and know that I am God. I like both translations for two different reasons. Cease striving or be still, know that I am God. So I will be exalted. God will be lifted up among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. All people will know, and you might be hearkening to the New Testament, right? Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Not just some, not just people who are in for it, not just people who signed up for it, not just people who praised him during life or called out to him and were saved, but all people's knees will bow and every tongue confess. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is 
is our stronghold. And there is that word again. The Lord of hosts, that means the master of all armies, the great leader of the greatest army is with us. And the God of Jacob, that's our God, Yahweh, creator God, Jehovah Jireh, our God, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. And again, that word stronghold. Okay, so we've worked our way through the text. There's a few things I want you to see in here. A couple of them are pretty basic, but I think they're hugely important for our day. The first one is that according to the psalmist, clearly and evidently, obviously, the psalmist is saying that God is ready. But not only that he is ready, and this is the part that people tend to miss, he is accessible. You can have a relationship with God. You can talk to God any time of the day, all day long. You can sing praise songs literally every moment that you are awake. And I would submit to you, especially for those who have practiced praise songs a lot, you can probably dream them too. I've dreamed them a couple times, and I'm not even very good at singing praise songs, or I haven't done that much of it. So you can literally sing to God, work for God, talk for God, walk for God, be with God, have God in your presence all day long. And that's the last part of it then. It says, He is present with us. This is the problem that I have. This is where difficulty sets in. And it is this. Aaron, God is present in this room. Are you fully present in this room? Are we fully present? God is present. Are we fully present? Are you thirsting for the next drop of living water that comes from the Lord? It's a rushing river. You don't have to ration it. But God wants to give it. God's trying to give it. What's your response? He is present. If you are saved, the Holy Spirit of God has come and live in you. But are you living around Him? What is your response? I had a young lady once who was in a bind... Her family situation had basically gone in bad ways. Situations developed that were bad. And she called and she said, I need a place to stay. And I'm like, well, now I have the authority to say that you can come and stay with us. But I'm going to talk to my wife first because I'm no fool, right? And this is a young female. And I said, oh, so I'll go to my wife. And I said, okay, so what do you think about this? And she said, well, we have to make some adjustments. You have to work this all out and whatever. And guess what? Then she, this young lady, came and stayed with us for a while. And when she came and stayed with us for a while, we adjusted our lives. We made, took steps so that, for example, I was never alone with her. I was never in a room alone with her. Like she and I did not sit and watch TV together when no one else was around. That literally never happened. I was not in the same part of the house with her unless my wife was there, my kids were there, whatever, somebody that was old enough to know what was going on and keeping. She sat at our dinner table with us and our family, right? We adjusted our lives because she came and lived with us. Are you adjusting your life because the Holy Spirit of God has come and live with you? If so, then your mind needs to be on God, at least during the preaching. But is it during the preaching? At least during the singing, but is it during the singing? Listen, if you're working for God, if you set out to work for God, then shouldn't your mind be on God? At least some portion. I know you need some portion of your conscious faculty to be involved in what you're actually doing. But shouldn't your presence be with God? Listen to me. If you're not going to do it with God, don't ever turn a wrench again. If you're not going to do it with God, don't ever pick up your Bible again. If you're not going to do it with God, don't ever sit down to dinner with your family again. Stop right here and don't waste the rest of your breath on anything. 
We'd be better off to, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ by your profession, you'd be better off to literally blink out of existence than live another second not recognizing the presence of God in you. God is present. Oh, we want him as a refuge. We want him as strength. We want him as an ever-present help in time of danger. But we just don't want him ever-present. You can't put your God in a shed. You can't put him in the garage. You can't put him in a tool chest. You can't trap him in a Bible. This is God. He ain't small. Given his preference, he will occupy every single, and I'm speaking in literal terms here, inch of your being. Skin to skin. Hair to bunions. He's got you all. And the problem is, we act like we're not interested. When God is working, he is ready, and he is accessible, that's great. I want God ready to help me when I need help. I want God ready to answer my prayers. I want him accessible. I don't want to say, okay, God, I need some help here. And he says, you know, just, uh, you know, you have reached the God prayer line. Please press 2 if your needs are immediate. 2. I'm sorry. No one is available to help you at this time. No. God is ready and accessible. And we love that. The problem is, God is present. He is ever present with us. He's ready and accessible partly because He's present. But are we present? Or are we busy on our phones? Or are we busy in a, playing a game? Or are we busy listening to some other kind of music? Are we busy trying to manipulate our family and friends? He's ready. He's accessible and he is present with us. To be like him, we ought to be present. That's why it says, do all things as if you do them unto the Lord. To be safe in him, we have to call on him. And the nice thing about calling on God is you already know that God will answer. Whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So call on God. Then put away all your distractions, put away all your temptations, put away all the things in your life that keep you from being present with God. To demonstrate that God was with us, He sent His only Son. If you're not willing to be with God, then you must not recognize that God sent Jesus to die for you. And you say, no, no, I did that. I, I, I said words. I went through a process. I have served when I didn't want to. I have sweat and bled when I didn't want to. So clearly I'm saved, right? That is not the way it works. God is ever present. And if you won't also be present with Him. In our young marriage between my wife and I, we went back and forth over intimacy and over spending time together. And she felt like, and it was even before we ever got married because we weren't Christians at the time, and she felt like I didn't spend enough time with her and so on. And this is essentially what our relationship was like. She loved me and wanted to spend time with me. I said I loved her, but the truth is I had another agenda. I wanted to do other things. I didn't want to spend time with her to the point that I would spend time with her on certain times. I planned out certain times to do that, but I wouldn't spend time with her the rest of the time. I, when we were together, I would be doing something different. She would sit with me. I'd play on the computer while she's sitting with me. And I had such a guilt and a feeling of realizing that I was not reciprocating her love. I was not giving back what she was giving to me. That I began to despise her. You cannot serve two masters. 
Are you present with God or not? Can you put it away? Can you focus on just one thing? I understand we have psychological and physical needs. I understand some of us are very important at our jobs, are very important in our families, very important in our own minds, that something must interfere with whether or not God is getting first place right now. God's saying, hey, Dan, hey, Dan, hey, hey, over here, Dan, Dan. And I'm like, oh, but there's the waitress, and i got to make sure and get my drink, right? No. If you're present with God, then God is the number one thing. He's ready and he's accessible and for those who have called upon him, he is present with them. The question is, are you present with him? The second thing to see in here is that God is clearly great above all and the psalmist gets pretty particular about this. He basically leads us in verse 9 to see that it says, he makes wars to cease, meaning God is above all wars. It doesn't matter if some guy decides to go buy an AK-47 or an AR-15 and then go shoot up a school. God is present above that. God is more powerful than that. If people would do what's right and lead people to Jesus, if people would do what's right and love and serve and create something that would be God-honoring, we'd have less of that going on. But God is above all wars. God is above all hearts. When he speaks, the hearts melt. The people melt. God is above hearts. I've been talking to... I noticed this phenomenon years and years ago. So I talked to a lady on the phone this week. It just happened once this week. I was having trouble getting someone to act. And so then I, this is not a believer, not a fellow Christian, not a member of our church or anything. And so I, they answered the phone, and I said, this is Pastor Dan from New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church. And they said, okay, uh, how can I help you? And they actually helped me. Now, the person's not a professing Christian, because I talked to him a little bit after that. They're not a professing Christian. They don't recognize Jesus. But when I said I'm Pastor Dan, New Heights Fellowship Baptist Church, they either caved and did what they were supposed to do because they're afraid of you, or they caved and did what they're supposed to do because they're afraid of God. And I'll tell you that I've seen it a hundred times over the last 15 years that it's people are afraid of God. People who don't know God. People who don't call on the name of God. Right? When I was not a believer... I had a Bible that, was, that had been given to me by, by my parents when I was like six years old. It was in my room on the shelf. A couple of times it wound up on the floor. I never picked up my floor, ever. I had a horizontal filing system, you know what I mean? I could find everything because nothing was on top of anything else. Literally, there was not seven inches on my floor. Not even bigger. When my room, my foot size got to be about eight inches long, then you say there was not eight inches on my floor because I literally would step in between stuff. I had a horizontal filing system over my whole floor. But when that Bible wound up on the floor, I would cross the room and pick it up and put it on the shelf. And I didn't know God. The atheists roar and rage because they don't know God and because they don't want to know God. The arguments against God are about not succumbing, not giving in, not submitting to the one that everyone knows, every single person on the face of the planet knows we will submit to. You deal with an atheist, and you start to push holes in their theories. You start to say, hey, think about this. What about this? How can, you, how can you know? I mean, atheism is not even, it's an untenable position because you can't know. Then say, okay, well, then I'm an agnostic. I don't know. So I won't say I, I, I'm an atheist. I know there isn't a God, but I'll say I'm an agnostic. Because that's a tenable position because people, people don't know. Even Christians don't know the full thing about God, right? People recognize that there is a God, there has to be, it's just logical, 
and they will be affected by that. God is great above war. God is great above hearts. And God is great above trials. I have been in some very difficult situations over my life. I won't say that they're as difficult as some of the ones that you've been in. Each person's life is different. I've never been uh, to war, and we have veterans in the room. I've never been through basic training, and we have people who have been through that in the room. I've never left the military and tried to recover a life after having... I've never been through that, right? But I've been through some difficult times, and this is what I know. Every time, even when I was stupid about it, even when I wasn't asking God for help, I can look back and see that God was present. And he was in charge of those circumstances. And he used them in the worst of times to grow me into the person that he was making me to become. God is above all trials. And then, uh, and I mentioned this one before, God is above all chaos. Now it's funny how this works because we start to see chaos and we start to think nobody's in charge. Remember the illustration that I gave about a room full of kids? You sit back and you watch a room full of kids and they are approaching chaos, right? Now you watch. You watch them for about five minutes and pretty soon you'll be able to figure out who's in charge. Now their method of leadership is not controlling or manipulating. But you'll figure out who's in charge. Back in the day we were, we were East Little Baptist Church and the youth group was growing and things were starting to happen and there were people who had been there they had been part of the youth group since before they were youth, right? They had come up through the ranks. Uh, Mike was one of those, for example. And Mike was a domineering personality. He was a strong personality in the youth group, and he affected the people all around him during that time. And people were interested to know what he had to say. And when he'd speak up, and most of the time he'd speak up, it was biblical. And sometimes he'd speak up, it was just plain loud. But there were things that were said, and people would listen, right? And the point is, you could tell, who, then when we started growing and we had like 25 people instead of six people, now people were trying to figure out who was the person, who's the leader. And you could sit back and you could see the little leaders developing and affecting everyone around them. But God is above all of that, right? He's in charge above all of the chaos and all that goes on. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, it says this, Beginning in verse 20, Ephesians 3.20, it says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then it goes on to chapter 4, by the way. That is not him closing out the letter. He might be closing out the thought, but he's closing, and he's closing it out this way. He says that God, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask, wait for it, or think. It's your best, most alert and discerning moment, which you're at the top of your game, hyped up on monsters or, or vitamin B or coffee or apples or whatever your pep up of choice is. At your best, most alert moment, when you're activating your brain and you're remembering all the training that you received and you got it all figured out, God is able to do exceedingly above all that you can think. Oh, we're dreamers. We imagine. But God can not only dream and imagine, He can do. He is able to do more than that. He is above all the chaos. The chaos results. Watch the kids. They're a perfect example. The chaos results because this person has his wants and desires. This person has his wants and desires. This person, right? What's the number one fight that happens between children? He took my toy. 
right? I was playing with that. I set it down just for one second, and now he has it, right? He took that out of my hand, right? It's the number one thing. They, they fight over something they want, right? Or he won't play with me all the time. Adults play the same games. We're doing the same thing. We're putting different titles on it. We're, we're coming up with different ways to look at it. But the bottom line is, it's your wants and desires not fulfilled. And, it, and then there's this want over here not fulfilled, this one over here not fulfilled, and this one over here not fulfilled. And you start to go, oh, I'm getting depressed. Because three of my top three things that I want right now are not happening, right? The other day, this broke, and then that broke, and then that broke, and then that broke. There are four things in like three hours. I'm like, what is going on? Right? That's what we call chaos. When it looks like nobody's in charge and things are going every which direction, it looks like the white water foam because everything's going which way and you don't know what's going to happen. But trust me, believe in God. He knows what's going on. In the greatest of chaos, he is so far above. You understand? You've heard that there's such a thing as predestination, right? Where it's like God knows what we're going to do before we do it. If God knows what we're going to do before we do it, then do we really have free will? That's what some people ask. Do we really have free will because God knows what we're going to do before we do it? Yes. You know how? Because God knows all the possible eventualities, no matter what you choose. If there are 75 different possibilities that you could choose right now in this moment, you could choose to go to the bathroom, you could choose to sit in your chair, you could choose to put your feet up or don't put your feet up, you could choose to look at your phone, you could choose to play a game, you could choose to watch a video, you could put your mask up, you put your mask down. If there are all these possibilities, God knows the outcome of all all of those possibilities. That's how he knows what will happen. Because he knows it all. Not because he knows that you will specifically choose red over green. But he knows what will happen if you choose red, and he knows what will happen if you choose green. Like a master chess player, before any piece on the board is moved, can think of all the possible eventualities until checkmate, no matter what piece you move. God is like that. He is above all chaos able to do exceedingly more than you can in your best moment think. Third thing to see in there is that God will be our helper, our shelter, our stronghold. God will be our helper, our shelter, our stronghold. He is an ever-present help in time of danger. It's time we talk about that word stronghold because it's some people often misunderstand it. A stronghold is not a castle. Okay? Most strongholds, if you look over history, were um, a walled-off area. Okay, let me ask you this. Perfect example. You know the stories of Robin Hood, right? Do you remember the stories of Robin Hood? They're probably just legends, but stories of Robin Hood. What was Robin Hood's stronghold? Sherwood Forest. Why didn't the sheriff snuff him out, finish him once and for all? Because every time the sheriff would close in on him, he would escape to Sherwood Forest. And they knew the ways of Sherwood Forest. They knew the paths and the trails and the bushes and where to hide and where to be not seen and where to ambush from. And the sheriff and his men did not. Now you understand what a stronghold is. A stronghold is not a castle. It is not something that sits around you and protects you. You've heard the rumors now, whether it winds up being true for sure or not, that they're going to build walls around the Capitol buildings in D.C. We have a wall that has stretched the majority of our southern border because we had invaders. We had issues that we're dealing with, and that was the choice of how government decided to deal with it. And they put a, around, a wall around the Capitol building so that people can't approach 
close enough to cause danger or da damage to the building, right? That's a castle, not a stronghold. A stronghold is when a place that you retreat to when you are under threat to rally, resupply, retrain, rebuild, and ultimately what? Attack. To attack. And your stronghold supplies your attack. We watched the movie The Princess Bride at my house a couple nights ago. I've seen that movie now about probably 25 times. Can quote a lot of the lines. I really enjoy it. If you've never seen it, I recommend it. It's just for fun. It's nothing too crazy. It is a little crazy, but it's, it's just for fun. They come out of the fire swamp. And they're accosted by the prince and his guards. And he says, but how will you take us? We now know the secrets of the fire swamp. We can retreat back into the fire swamp and you'll never get us out. We can stay there for as long as we need. So what was the fire swamp? A stronghold. That's what he's talking about. We now have a stronghold that you cannot take from us, except what happened. They surrounded them and cut them off from going back into the fire swamp. They took away their stronghold. And this is what Christians are doing. We're taking away our own stronghold. We listen to the world. We listen to the arguments of the world. We let them make us afraid. They, we let them make us think that we cannot retreat into God. We let them make us think that God will not protect us and provide for us and empower us and give us purpose. And He will do all of those things. God is our stronghold and ever-present help in time of danger. And when you face the biggest enemy, which is probably going to be spiritual, but the biggest enemy that you have ever faced, God is right there with you if you're a follower of Lord Jesus Christ. If you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you're living with Him, then He is living with you. Are you present? Some years ago, I went to a sporting event. There's a guy who lived down the street. We had off and on frictions with him. While I was at the sporting event, he was with us. Which, uh, the sporting event was out at UT. As we went to UT, we had to park in a place we didn't recognize and walk down a winding path that we didn't recognize up through a dark area that we didn't know about. And there was no lights. I wasn't armed and I was little. I've never been all that good at fighting. I've just been good at getting beat up, pretty much. I'm just really good at getting beat up. Like I persist to the point that they hurt themselves trying to beat me up. That was my, I don't want to do that now because I'll probably break, but that's the way I did it back then. And walk into this dark area, and guess what? I wasn't afraid. You know why I wasn't afraid? Because the guy that was with me was 6'5", 6'6", six, 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 and 425, and had won the division championships playing football with a broken arm. I wasn't afraid in the dark. I wasn't afraid in a path I didn't know. I wasn't afraid in a place I didn't think I was going to have to go because the guy that was with me made me feel like I could be okay. That's who God is. If you have not felt that sensation of going, okay, I'm facing something that I may not be able to overcome. This may not go the way I want. Everything could be melting, falling apart. It could all die right here. And God, inside you said, it's okay. I got this. Then you probably don't know the God of heaven. You probably have not had a relationship with God. Either that or you've had a very sheltered existence. And God does shelter us daily so that we don't even recognize those things. I've had a number of times in my life where somebody was coming at me hot and heavy and I would normally be terrified. I would want to run. And then I get to the end of it and I'm like, that was really weird. I wasn't afraid. Why wasn't I afraid? It wasn't that I didn't sweat or didn't, my, I didn't get worked up, but I wasn't terrified to the point of inaction. And that's who I used to be before I got saved. Like my boss from Pizza, the one that ultimately fired me, she said, you know what your problem is? You're not afraid of me. 
and I was like, it took me aback because I'm like, wait a minute, I'm not. That's so weird because I've been like afraid of everybody all my life, and now I'm a Christian, and I've been a Christian only for a little while, and, and I'm not afraid, finally. God will be our helper. He will be our shelter, and he will be our stronghold, but a stronghold is a very specific thing. It is that which protects you and empowers you and gives you a place to be safe so that you can strike out and take territory for the one who built the stronghold, which is God. In this case, God is the stronghold. So you can retreat into God when things get really dark and you go, oh, God, help me. And God will help you. But after you get done going, oh, God, help me. You don't get to one hour later or one day later, kind of forget about God, not be present and spend more time on electronics than with God. You don't get to do that. Because if you're not present, maybe he's not present. And if he's not present, then when you go, oh, God, help me, where is he? Now, he may just come calling, especially if you call in the name of Jesus. He might come right then. But he also might say, yeah, you know, I was with you. You've heard of the Footprints poem? Spoil the ending for you if you haven't ever heard of it. It says, those times when there's only one set of footsteps in the sand, that's not me leaving you, that's me carrying you. I submit to you that that was a pretty good illustration of the Christian walk. But in my experience, there's another time. It's a time when there's only one set of footprints in the sand because that's me leaving God. And we've got to stop leaving God. When you retreat into God's stronghold and you know you need God's help, when you come out of there, you have to come out more ready to serve, more ready to fight, more ready to voice God's truths to anyone who will listen. So there were three things I wanted you to see in the text and we've seen them now. Number one, God is ready, accessible, and present with us and therefore we ought to be present with Him. Number two, God is great above all War, hearts, trials, even chaos. Number three, God will be our helper, our shelter, and our stronghold, which is that place that we go for protection and safety and building and then launch our attacks back from to do God's will and advance the kingdom of God. That's what a stronghold is. So then we come to the conclusion. And the psalmist says it this way. He says, cease striving and know that I am God. Cease striving. Well, the problem with striving is we think that means cease working, but it doesn't mean that, right? Striving is not working. Striving is working that's really hard, pushing. It's more difficult than work, more difficult than what we were created for. I tell Ariana, she gets in the car, and she says, I can't buckle my seatbelt. I can't do it. I can't do it. So hard. And I said, listen, here's something you need to learn. If it's that hard, you're probably not doing it right. And she says, well, am I not doing right? And I look back there, and she's like, the buckle's not even facing the right direction. I'm like, it's not facing the right direction. Turn around. She turns around, click, and it goes. That's striving. You're striving to do what you think is right. You're striving to do what you should do. You're striving to make the world what you want it to be. Striving to figure out this problem. Striving to overcome this difficulty. Striving to add something to the kingdom. Striving to add something to God. Striving to add something to yourself. Striving to become a better person. Striving, striving, striving. All striving in ways that are too hard because they are not the ways that God has ordained. See striving. Cut it out. Knock it off. Really? He's with you. 
God is with you. Stop the striving. We also think of striving as fighting, right? Like wrestling, physical fighting, fighting with somebody. It's not that. Because being still doesn't stop a fight. Somebody comes after you, that's not going to stop a fight. You still got to fight. If you got to fight, you got to fight to protect your family. You, gotta, you might have to fight to survive. Somebody might come after you with a knife or a gun. You may have to defend yourself. You have to do so in a godly way, but it's not about stopping fighting. It's about stopping trying to make something that is not out of God out of something that is completely God. Stop trying to fix it. Trust God's plan. Fear not. I want you to think for a moment about the, the return of the prodigal son. I'm not going to go there and read it in the interest of time. It's in Luke 15, 11 to 32. You can read it later for yourself if you want. But the, the prodigal son, basically, he's the guy who goes off and squanders all of his inheritance and winds up feeding the pigs. And he says, Ma, the servants in my father's household are doing better than I You know what happened there, by the way? God was present with him. And then he chose not to be present with God. And he went off and he said, give me my inheritance now. And he lived and squandered his inheritance. He wound up with nothing, feeding the pigs. And he says, the servants in my father's house do better than I do. I'm going to go back and ask him to at least make me a servant. Then as he comes back, the father sees him coming because he was waiting on the porch. God was waiting for him to come back. God was still present, but he left him. He left him there. He sees him coming and he runs out and he grabs him. He falls on him, kisses his neck. And then he puts a robe on him, a ring on him, and sandals on his feet and kills a fatted calf. And those four things represent what God does to anybody. If you'll come back to God, He'll give you power, He'll give you purpose, He'll give you protection, and He'll give you provision. It's four Ps. Fairly easy to remember. Power, purpose, protection, and provision. That's what God does when the prodigal son returns home. Now, you could be not saved and come to God for the first time. It's going to be power, protection, purpose, and provision. You could be saved and you left God. You've not been present with God. You come back to Him. It's going to be power, purpose, protection, and provision. If you want to do them in a different order, go for it. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And he says, cease your striving and know that I am God. But it's interesting because according to this text, there are some people who are striving very specifically to overcome or get away from God. It says the nations roar. Remember, right? Remember that? The nations made an uproar. And we talked about how that shakes people and it makes people not want to look at God. Because the nations are louder than God. There's chaos. There's struggle. There's difficulty. But they're not actually louder than God, are they? Because when God roars, all the world melts. Even those who are roaring in God's face. They roar, God roars back, and they melt. For all your striving, you can make God no holier than He is. You can make Him no more just than He is. You can make Him no more powerful than He is. You can make Him no more wonderful than He is. You can make Him no more God than He is. And you cannot make the kingdom of God any more the kingdom of God than it already is. You cannot do it. Cease your striving. Rather, trust in the Lord who is ready and accessible and present with us. And fear not. God is great above all war hurts, trials, and even chaos. And God will be our helper and our shelter and our stronghold. And from that stronghold, we will launch out and win souls. We will launch out and serve God. We will win. The nations roar. And they roar because they want to be like God. They roar because they want to intimidate those who do follow God. They roar because out of the interest of that, maybe you'll leave God. And not be present with him. But they cannot out shout God. 
no matter how hard they try. And they may shout at the top of their lungs and they may shout in unison. But if God should just whisper, their souls will leap at the possibility of his presence, just as mine does. He will not be outdone. As the times unfold, we may see more and more chaos. Don't focus on it. In fact, you really don't even have to do anything about it. We have a job to do. Share Jesus with anybody who will listen. Come out of the stronghold. Give more, serve more, work more, live more. What happens, and it's the greatest tragedy of all things to some people, is they join the roar. They join the shouting. Even as Christians, they join the shouting, the striving. And that is not where we belong. We have peace because we know our God is readily accessible and present. He is great above all, and he will be our helper and our stronghold. So no matter how bad it gets, if you need to retreat into the Lord, realize that it is for a time of refreshing. It is for a time of building strength and adding skill. It is for a time of learning more about who he is and how he's above you in this situation. You cannot outshout God. The world cannot outshout God. God loves you. God loves us. And he is our ever-present help in times of trouble. And our stronghold from which to fight. Let me pray for you briefly, and then we'll have a closing hymn of invitation.